You are listening to A Window on North Devon, a podcast about people in North Devon, hosted by Jim Duncan and supported by the lovely people at Woodstock Windows. Hello and welcome to A Window on North Devon podcast. Today I'm joined by Merlin Cadogan. Um, Normally I do the introductions and this is like the first guest I've got with his own Wikipedia page which is quite exciting <laughs> but it's very small um, yeah. you need to do some work on that can you do your own work on your own Wikipedia uh, page? I'm a complete idiot with computers <laughs> my friend did that for me one day my friend called Osley and uh, he set that for me many years ago kindly getting back on it I do need to get need someone some to do my technical stuff I'm, my website's terrible as well um, so yeah normally I would do a big introduction but I've just looked at what seems to be an immense experience of life. I don't know if a body of work or a canon of work is the right answer. Just a, just a mass of things that you've done and achieved. So what are you? <laughs> um, I'm lucky. Um, I don't know what I am really. Like I do juggling and escapology for a living. And uh, so that's, I suppose, I'm a juggler and an escapologist. So you're not a wizard? But do you know what? I don't. I do some magic in my show, but I think I might be a wizard in real life. You think? Surely you should know. Yeah. I, well, I am. I reckon. I reckon I am. Yeah. Okay. It's official. You're a wizard. Is that? Is it actually your name? Merlin Cadogan is my real so name. That's really rude. That's no, no, no. <laughs> Honestly, I get that all the time when I turn up for gigs. They go, "Yeah, but we can't call you Merlin." And I go, "Well, it's my name." And they go, "No, no." And I go, "It is." And then they go, "Really?" And I show them my driving license, and they go, oh, "I'm so sorry," you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, it's a crazy name for a performer, but it's true. Okay, um, I want to start by congratulating you for still being alive. <laughs> Thank you. From what I've noticed, <laughs> that's been quite a big challenge. Um, are you from North Devon? Yes, I was born in Barnstable. Barnstable Hospital? Yes. Wow, so uh, born and bred, you know, everything there is to be about it. So how did someone from Barnstable, born in North Devon, basically become Merlin? Well, I mean... Um, my dad was a rally driver and owned a garage on Bear Street. And um, so that was, was in the RAF as an engineer. And my mum was a sort of, a, she used to go around to the Formula One circuits as a courier. And then um, they split up when I was about four. And I ended up moving up to London and then to Bristol with my mum. And um, I went to school up there, but I used to come and see my dad all the time. And I always wanted to be a rally driver. And then... Um, I sort of got into doing juggling by chance and I, I, I finished school and I went to college and I got accepted to do um, a, a, a business studies degree but I took a year out so I took my year off before I went to university and ended up in Ireland and the last thing I picked my rucks up was some juggling balls and um, a guy that I was working with in Bristol when I went to stay um, one of his friends had a flat there so I stayed in this guy's flat and ran out of money and um, uh, he actually was a bank robber, this guy, but not the sort of bank robber that goes in with a gun, but he made a box that fitted over the, where the money came out of cash points. And he used to go around and um, he never bought drinks when we went out. And I, he, he bought everyone everything all the time. But when I got there, he, he never had any money and everyone was looking after him. And then one day in conversation, my mate said, oh, you know, he used to be a bank robber. And I was like, oh, no. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, oh, but he never has any money. Everyone buys him stuff. And he said, oh, that's because um, he gave all the money that he had away. He never kept any of it. And um, he got caught. And um, they said, like, where's all the money? And he said, I haven't got a penny. And they literally didn't have any money given all away to people. So all of his friends sort of looked after him. So it's a bit of a weird one. But um, anyway, we went, ended up travelling, got to Galway, ran out of money and ended up doing street shows, juggling in Galway. And sort of got into juggling and really enjoyed it. And then um, 
I cancelled my. Uh, I wanted. I sort of thought it was amazing watching learning. How, watching myself learn to juggle because when you learn one thing, it enables you to do the next thing, and when you can do that, it enables you to do the next. And the horizon sort of retreats endless, endlessly, and your skills get better. And so I cancelled. I wanted to do um, a sports studies degree, so they said, "Oh, you've got to cancel your um, business studies degree to apply for a sports studies." So I cancelled it, and then they didn't accept me. So that was it. So then I thought, well, I'll set up and be a. Um, a self-employed juggler then. So I spent my time practicing really hard and I got a job working in Woolacoon at the Woolacoon Bay Holiday Park where I was um, washing dishes in one of my dad's friends he used to rally with his restaurants and I used to juggle every day and then the entity manager said, can you do a show for me? So I did like a little 15 minute show every Saturday there and I got a taste for it and I was quite good at it. And then um, I got a contract working at Butlins running the outside stage and I used to compare and bring the acts on and off and do my own shows. And then I got a job on a cruise ship and I went back to Butlins and then, um, I, st- then I did a, t- a touring show that I produced for the, all of the Butlins circuits. And then uh, when I finished that, I'd sort of done quite a lot of shows and was all right at doing shows and I'd sort of my own little juggling career on the go. So that's how I got into it, really. It was just sort of bad luck and misjudgment. <laughs> Sounds like a great story. Yeah. I love the story even more because, please don't take this the wrong way, Yeah. I look at you and you don't look like a Butlins entertainer. No. <laughs> You've got this sort of almost slightly grizzled face, like. Oh yeah, I've been out in the sea a lot. I spent a lot of time surfing, so uh, and um, metal detecting recently. In the last sort of ten years, I've got into metal detecting underwater quite a lot. So I'm always out in the elements, and uh, you know, I probably should use a bit of moisturiser or something <laughs> like that. If you went back <laughs> as a red coat, you might need some moisturiser. I think maybe. I probably would. Yeah. Maybe that would be the key. <laughs> Now, I want to talk about um, about uh, Britain's Got Talent. Oh, yeah. Which obviously was going to come up. Yeah. And I think it's probably the first time, I mean, I ever heard of you. I remember I was living in London at the time and you right. came on and there's this guy from North Devon. So, you know, I think I even voted probably. Oh, so thank you. It was my pleasure. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Like 50 people. Yeah, no worries if you got it. <laughs> um, I mean, was it a turning point for you? To be honest, it was, um, it's portrayed that it's going to be a really big deal. All right, and um, uh, my wife said to me I should apply to do it, and with the diving helmet trick, and um, I'd never performed it. It'd been sat in the attic. I, my friend Bob Braunton made it for me at the old aerodrome by Chivna. Um, he used to have a business there next to my dad, and um, called Freebird Surf. They used to make surfboards. Yeah. And um, yeah, and he he made the helmet for me, and um, is that I, why it's full of foam? Yeah, because it's just fiberglass on the outside. We made a mo- we made a paper mache mold. And, um, and man, I filled it up with water the first time and I could hardly stand with it. So we filled it up with expanding foam so that it wasn't so much water in there. Essentially, you were in a pop out on your head. Yeah, I am, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. And, um, and so, um, so, yeah, so we made this helmet and then I tried it and I nearly drowned because I was juggling the fire. <laughs> I was juggling fire inside the helmet with the snorkel out the top. And I was living in Braunton at the time and I dropped a fire club on the floor. My friends who were looking after me <gasps> quickly picked up the fire club. But um, and put the grass out that was on fire, <laughs> but no one had noticed that the snorkel had fallen inside the helmet, and I was exhaling through the snorkel to clear it, but because it was actually underneath, trapped under the surface of the water, it wouldn't ever clear, so I ran out of air, and um, I had to rip this helmet off my head, and I managed to get it off in time, and it cracked a little bit, the fibreglass, and I put it away after that, you know, I was a bit scared, I put it away, so anyway, she said I should apply and do that on there, so I applied to them, and they said, yeah, you can come and do an open audition, so I dug the helmet out and I fiberglassed it back into shape again. And um, and so I, I went up there with the, the helmet 
and just went in there. I think I wore um, the famous Union Jack shorts now and the long fur coat that I'd bought when I was away with uh, my wife in Amsterdam, like a big long trench coat type thing. And I just went into this hotel and there were all these sort of people juggling crazily and like really working all these things and looking amazing. And I just walked in. I'd, I'd been working the night before until about four in the morning and I slept in the van up in the car park in Wales, drove up there. I walked in and everyone looked at me like I was some freak. And um, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, basically, I said, I like hold my breath underwater, escape from 10 metres of chain and juggle fire. And they went, you're through to the audition stage. <laughs> and that was it. So um, so then I had to practice it. And um, just before I was going to do it, my wife said that she couldn't help me out because she was a, she was a, she's an amazing singer. And um, she was on the show singing. So she said, um, I'm not allowed to help you out with it. So I met a girl about two days before on a, on a gig we'd done on stilts. And you know, when you meet some people, sometimes you can see that they're switched on. And this girl was proper switched on and she had my back when we were doing the stilts and I was looking out for her. So it was good. So I called her up and said, do you want to be on TV and help me with this stunt? And she said, sure. And she lives on a houseboat near Bath. So I drove up there and stayed a few nights with her. And we went through this routine that we were going to do with this helmet. And we we practiced it on the Tuesday morning at my mum's house in Bristol in the snow. I remember it in the garden for the first time we did it with the water. And because um, we'd only be practicing in this pub upstairs and we did it and it was fine. And I'd written out a script for her and she wrote it onto her hand. And we drove over the bridge to Wales where I did the audition in Cardiff and we did the audition and it went brilliantly. And she was really, really good. And it was it was great. It couldn't have gone any better. And um, so then they so they said, oh, it was really great. You know, we loved it. Brilliant. So they said, you're um, through. To, we'll let you know in the post what happens. So anyway, my wife got a letter saying that she had got through to the next stage and I hadn't got a letter for ages. Then I got a letter saying I was through. So I was like, brilliant. So then we had to go to London for this reveal day and you drive to London and they basically, you don't perform, but they tell you whether or not you're through to the semi-final and about about 400 people get through to this reveal day, all the people that you see on television that get, get through, get to this reveal day. But then not all of those get through, only 40 of those people get through, so about one in 10. So we got to this thing and... Um, I was with this, I didn't know, you didn't know how it worked, you go in in groups to see the judges. I went in with this group of them and um, and I was sure I wasn't going to get through, you know. And they said, you're through to the semi-final, live semi-final. And I was like, oh my goodness, that was really amazing. And um, after that point there, they give you, you have some meetings with a producer to decide what you're going to perform in the semi-final. And there's a semi-final each night of the week and the final is on the last day of the week. So if you get through the semi-final, you already have to have prepared your act for the final because you've got no preparation time. So they said, what would you like to do? And so I said, I would like to have a two metre high tube of water that's a metre wide. And um, I've got a, a chain that runs down into the bottom of the tube and back up to the top with some handcuffs. And someone can drop the pick into the tank and then I'll get handcuffed in. They can pull the chain up, which pulls me down into the bottom of the tank. And then I'll pick the handcuffs cuffs in full view of the audience and I'll juggle three cannonballs holding my breath underwater. And they said, we love it. Brilliant. We'll get the tube. We'll sort it all out. So I spent the next three months preparing to do this stunt. I did a breath hold four minutes 20, which was my longest personal best I've ever done. And I got to be amazingly quick at picking handcuffs so after I'd done in a year's time, I got actually got the world Guinness World Record for the most handcuffs picked on, live on TV. So uh, um, anyway, they phoned me up about three weeks before and I'd had no sort of, after we'd done this, they said they were going to do it. I'd had contacted them on the phone, but no rehearsal time, nothing. And then um, they phoned up and said, you can't do that stunt because the weight of the water in the tank is more than the glass stage we, that we use in the, in the um, TV studios will support. Disappointing. So I was like, really? 
and um, they said, and I said, I said, I said, I've been practicing, man. I've been, I've been, I went to Egypt with Sarah Campbell, who's a British freediving world champion, and breath hold, you know, they said, you can't do it. We'll find someone else if you don't want to do something else instead. So I was like, great. So I managed to put together a straitjacket escape hanging on a burning rope in a couple of weeks, which was good. And I did that in the semi-final. didn't get through, but still did the escape perfectly, um, which was brilliant. But I reckon if I'd done, anyway, after that, um, I was performing at the Milky Way and I bought the tube and did it at the Milky Way the next season, that show, that the escape from the tube. And if I'd done that on the TV, I'm sure I'd have got through. I mean, it's the best stunt I've ever seen because it's... I've seen it. it was on, it's on YouTube. You can find the it. Hang, the hand, yeah. Yeah, Merlin Underwater Handcuff Escape. Yeah, yeah. But now I actually juggle three cannonballs inside the tank wow. as well. Yeah. And it, I've had a few near misses with that one where it's been really... I've nearly... I've, I've, you know, you sort of produce a stunt and you look at the safety side of it and you work out what's going to happen. And then you think you've covered every eventuality. Um, and then sometimes something comes along that you haven't foreseen... And it like puts it all in the and you and you think whoa and I've had it twice now I've had situations occur with that stunt that um I didn't envisage happening and didn't and I had messed up my my safety for it but both times I managed to sort it out so I was lucky. Scary stuff. Yeah, so, one of them was scary. The other one wasn't scary, but one of them was proper very close. So, did it change you? Did it change your career? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So after I, after the program had aired. Oh, sorry. When they had, when the program was on television, right, the producer had made it look amazing. What I'd done in in on the, in the theatre for the open audition, he'd made it look brilliant, you know. So hats off to them. And then subsequently, I did a lot of television appearances, and people would see me when I was driving anywhere in the country. Yeah, it's Merlin. Yeah, go on, you're gonna win, you know, and stuff like that. It was great. Um, and then after the program had aired, I didn't get through the semi final. Um, it was a tough year though. There was what, uh, Susan really Boyle, hard. diversity. Yeah. yeah. I made good friends on the programme with DJ Talent. And in his performance, he had 12 backing dancers, costumes, a gold throne on wheels, and a choreographer. They spent a lot of money producing this thing. And on my my one, I wore my motorbike trousers that I rode up to the studio in. (laughs) And um, I put my little spot together in two weeks, and I had about six minutes stage preparation time before... We actually did it. I still think it was an impressive stunt. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I actually after it all happened and I did. So what it was? It was um, it was you had a straight jacket on. Yeah. And you hung upside down mm. on a rope that was on fire. Yeah. And the idea is that you need to escape from the straight jacket That's before it. the rope burnt and you fell. Yeah. Um, head first to the ground. That's the one. Yeah. So um, so I managed to sort of produce that stunt and work out how it was all going to work, and I had to actually do almost do a one-handed pull-up because your my feet are have um like leather um, cuffs around each ankle that are joined together through um, a thing called a scaff hook which is sort of something you can unclip and clip on when you walk along scaffolding and that scaff hook then goes through a loop at the end of the rope and so what I needed to do to actually after I'd escaped from the handcuff I needed to do a sit up and then hold on to the strap off the rope pull myself up enough that there was no weight on my feet and then squeeze the scaff hook and pull it back out through the loop of the rope so I could then jump down to the floor and um, it was really t- difficult to do that. And I managed to work out the rig to do it. And I managed to practice it. And on the day of the performance, they hadn't even seen what I was doing. On the day of the performance, they said, can you get down from... Because everyone who does a state drag escape, when they've escaped, they just step on the end of the rope dangling. 
you know, by their feet. So, um, so I said, I can do it and get down. So I did it and they made me do it about seven or eight times. And it's a l- really difficult to do one-handed pull-up. It isn't quite a one-handed pull-up, but it is nearly. And um, I said to the guy, they said, do it again. I said, look, man, I said, there is no way I'm doing it again because I know I can't, I can't feel my arm now. And I said, I'll be doing it live on television later and I won't be able to do it if I do it again. So you don't have to just leave it there. I've done it like enough times and you can see where I'm going to end up. And that's it, you know. So, um, so anyway, after I didn't get through, it was my mum came up to watch the show. They give you tickets. They're fantastic. The people on the program, the producers, and all the backstage people are great. And um, I brought. They give you tickets for a few friends and my family, and it was brilliant. So after after it all finished and died down, I hadn't got through. Um, there was talk that I might get the tour. That they they do a tour, but I didn't get the tour. Um, and then um, Amanda Holden came down to the Milky Way to for a day out, and she came and said hello, which was really nice of her. And um, she was a lovely person. And uh, I think really the whole Britain's Got Talent thing, the experience of it was absolutely brilliant and it was great for publicity. Um, uh, and the people who were involved in the production and making the programme were absolutely, couldn't have been better, you know. And I mean, anyone who's thinking of going on to do something like that, I would certainly recommend them to give it a try and see how they get on because it's only going to be positive. And a lot of other professional acts that I know have said that they've um, been approached to do it and they haven't done it. And um, I've said, why not? And they always say, well, I've heard quite a lot of bad things about the way they treat you. And from my own personal experience, it is fantastic. You know, I would recommend anyone to do it. Um, it's, you're only going to get, I mean, and, and often the judges say things to the performers and the performers don't like to hear what they've said. But, you know, Simon Cowell, you know, whether you like him or don't like him, he knows his business, you know, he's a successful um, businessman and he knows what he's on about and if people like that talk to you and say things it's good to be quiet and listen and get advice and take it on board because they, they know their business you know sometimes you might not want to hear what they're saying but if you listen to what they say and take it on board you're going to be better off in the future you know do you know him well enough to drop in for a chat if you're around his house oh no i've only seen him about three times you know <laughs> as many times as I've yeah <laughs> yeah um you said earlier that um you were traveling and you turned it and you learned to juggle yeah essentially and that's the progression of that how did that? How did a juggler then become an escapologist? Um, I watched um, a friend of mine owns a production company in Bristol called Cirque Bijou, and we went to see. Um, I think it was a Lord of the Rings film at the cinema in Bristol once, and we were talking about um, a publicity stunt for his company, and um, and I we were just brainstorming in the trailers for the show, and I'd seen a think the film was called A Few Good Men, and there's a bloke in there. They go into full old style diving suits with a full face helmets and fill one of the scenes are in a bar and him and a, a guy are having a competition who can hold their breath the longest in this help this and I thought I'd be good at that because I've always been into free diving and um breath holding anyway this is even before Britain's Got Talent this is be- this is before Britain's Got Talent but after I'd had the helmet made and I thought well that would be a great thing to do would be to be able to hold your breath underwater and juggle at the same time and if I had a suit like that I could do it so that sort of gave me the idea and the inspiration to make the helmet and um and so that was sort of like the, uh, with the chaining up the 10 meters of chain and that was sort of how I got into it a little bit and when I was a kid I remember having some handcuffs and messing around and looking at the lock and just playing with it there wasn't weren't even proper handcuffs but just sort of interested and I'd heard of this guy Harry Houdini and um so after I sort of got the diving helmet made I got interested in Harry Houdini and I studied a little bit and then um 
I got the handcuffs sort of thing on the go, picking the handcuffs. There's another idea, really, because I did a straitjacket escape hanging off the bowsprit of the SS Great Britain in Bristol for their anniversary. That was after us on Britain's Got Talent, which was amazing. I've got some fabulous photographs of me hanging off the bowsprit of this huge ship, a majestic ship. And um, then I sort of thought, got into the handcuff thing with the with the tank, the big two the big two meter tank. You know, I thought that would be a great stunt, and I've never seen anyone do anything like that because Harry Houdini used to do an underwater handcuff escape, but he used to cover it over, and it was actually faked. And he used to cover it over with the screen, and then do whatever he did to free the handcuffs. But I thought I could hold my breath for four minutes twenty is my longest, and I could pick the hand. I got the world record for picking the most handcuffs in a minute. So I thought there's no need to fake it. And people would love to see some real, something real, you know. So um, so I decided that's what I was going to do. And so I got into that. And um, when I first started, I could not even pick the handcuffs. You know, it was really, really difficult. And I was, it, I couldn't do it. And I tried for three or four hours and I had to get the key and get out of them. And then after a little while, I just got the knack of it. And I reckon now I can actually pick them quicker than I can use a key. You know, it's... Um, Incredible. Yeah, it's just a, it's a very basic lock. And I think on the more modern cuffs, I use Al- Alcyon um, 5050s, which are the they're used by the most police forces around the world. But in Britain now, we've got a different um, set of handcuffs and the locking mechanism is the same, but it's more recessed. And I've tried to pick those, but I, cu- I couldn't pick them. But um, I think if I spent enough time trying to do it, I could. But I, I, at the moment, I can't. I haven't, I haven't tried for it. You know, I tried a little bit and thought that's a bit tricky. I'll leave there's other stuff to do. But but yeah. So I can mean, you pick any lock? I, I can't pick any lock, but I can sort of, I know how to pick locks, but I mean, I can pick handcuffs, they're quite a basic lock. If I needed to learn to pick a lock, I could study and learn how to do it because I've learned how to, that's the th- so that's the thing that I learned from being a juggler is I've learned how to learn. So when I'm teaching my children stuff and I'm doing things, you know, I think that's the most important thing that they don't really teach you in school. They teach you things, they teach but they don't actually teach you how to learn. And once yeah. you learn how to learn, you know, I say to kids that I teach, to, as I teach for a living, I teach juggling and circus skills. And when I teach the kids something, I try not to teach them how to do a specific trick. I try and teach them how to learn. And once they've learned to learn, I say to them, you can learn to drive a tank, fly a plane, drive a car, juggle five balls, whatever you need to do. These are the tools. And once you've got this, once you suss that, you're good to go. And I think that's what they should teach in schools. They don't seem to teach children how to learn. They just teach them facts and stuff. So I'm, I'm fully behind that sort of learning. Yeah. I, I spent my life teaching myself how to do things. Yeah. You need to have... It's not just um, having the skills to teach yourself stuff. It's about also having that um, belief, self-belief as well. Yeah. I can learn this. And yeah. I can do this. I'm not restricted to these one things. Yeah, that's it. Now... Um, after after your um, big television appearance, I remember I remember seeing you carrying some speakers into the Beaver um, for someone who was going to sing a gig. Do a right. gig, and I was in there having lunch with my, my um, uh, in laws. Right. And I thought, oh, I wondered what he was doing since then. And I don't, you know, I haven't really looked into it. But I look at your CV. I look at the list that you've sent me right. of what you've achieved, and you just haven't stopped. You have been endlessly tirelessly working and doing stuff do you think you are successful you're incredibly successful aren't you um i don't know i've never thought that really i mean i i don't i wouldn't say i was really successful i'm happy i think that's if that's your goal then that's yeah success. yeah definitely yeah it depends how you define it you know i mean um well let's let's start with like your recent trip to the maldives yeah that was a that, that was, was a great impressive. gig. Yeah, I haven't done. That's the first time I've got a, a, a gig like that performing there. It was in. Um, it was through a company called Area Fifty One. I was performing out there on this island called Reethi Ra, 
um, and it's a very exclusive island. I think the cheapest stream on the island is about £10,500 a night. Um, it's really high class. There's a lot of um, billi mainly billionaires, millionaires at least, who are multi-millionaires who stay there. And, um, you know, they, they booked me to do um, New Year's Eve and then the Russian Orthodox Christmas about seven days after that. So it was fantastic. So you got to stay um, there for the entire time? Yeah. So I did like um, a welcome, I did some performing at the welcome event when they arrived, Then New, which was on the 28th, then on New Year's Eve in the evening. And then on, I think it was the 7th of January. Um, and the time between New Year's Eve and the 7th of January, I had three apart from I had to produce a show with another chap who was um, a, a very skilled cl uh, clown and, and mime artist over there called Jason Maverick and we had to produce a show that we did together a clown show which is a little bit out of my comfort zone because I don't really do clowning but um, we managed to produce a really great show and um, it, it went down really well so that was a great thing but I mean yeah it was just a brilliant gig but I mean the money wasn't amazing money for a job like you'd think like that oh, sounds like it's going to be really well paid but it wasn't particularly well paid but the, you know that's not why I got into juggling because I think it's all about um you know experiencing new things i've never been to the maldives before seeing how other people live their lives and um i got to go snorkeling a couple of times over there i saw a couple of, a lot of sharks there i saw a couple of sharks um saw some turtles and i hadn't been in the indian ocean um probably for about 12 years um because i used to go to indonesia surfing all the time and then when i had my daughter i didn't i stopped sort of stopped doing going away for the winters so um so I felt a real connection getting back into the ocean. And, you know, um, when I was doing the show, I actually put my hand through the rubber seal of the, of the diving helmet the day, the day before the performance. So I couldn't actually perform it in the dark as it was going to be done in the evening. I managed to repair it. Then the next evening we did the performance and um, I'd escaped from the chains fine, went to do the fire juggling and I realised I could not see anything apart from flames because of the way the stage lighting was but we hadn't been able to tech it through so um but I knew I wasn't going to drop anything I just knew that I wouldn't I wouldn't drop and um that the day before when I'd done it I'd used water from the sea that I'd filled the helmet with and I think I felt this sort of connection with the water and then on the actual performance I'd escaped from the chains I held up my hands my assistant put the fire clubs into my hands and I looked I thought man you can't see anything <laughs> And I've got like they flamed me all this way to do this performance to so this one sort of like ten minute spot, you know, and this is the finale of this ten minute spot and you know, you don't wanna let everyone down and do a bad performance, you know. And I remember thinking, It's gonna be fine, I'm definitely and I knew that I would not drop and I juggled these clubs. I couldn't see the handles of the clubs, or I could just see these flames and I juggled the clubs and then when I finished I handed them back to my assistant and I popped the seal on the helmet and all the water came out and the crowd were going crazy. And uh, it was that was a moment of magic right there. But no one else that no one else would even know that, you know, watching there just think, oh, that guy was good, you know, or whatever. But for me, I knew I couldn't actually physically see anything when I was juggling, but I knew I wouldn't drop. I had that feeling, you know, so um, it was a really special trip over there. And that was sort of was like part of the, one of the highlights of it for me, certainly, you know. Amazing. Yeah. And um, throughout your career, you've done quite a lot of cruise ship entertaining, is that right? I did six months on a cruise ship when I first started out. Um, from um, Miami to the Bahamas um, and uh, for a small cruising company called Discovery Cruises and um, that was amazing. Um, I sort of, I think that really helped shape my performance because it was like in at the deep end, you had to be quite professional and um, it, it needed to be solid what you're performing and it needed to be of a certain standard and so that was a real, um, after 
performing at Butlins on this outside stage and just having to fill lots of time and just have fun with people and it was a, a sort of a step up from that to a different sort of environment, you know. Being professional even if there's a storm. Yeah, I mean I was performing on that ship sometimes and um, and it would rock around so much and I'd do an, a, a part where i throw a ball in the air and it would hit the ceiling, hit the floor, bounce up and I'd catch it balancing on my forehead and I was doing that that trick on that ship and sometimes the ceiling would be it I'd throw the ball and then the ship would tilt and the ceiling would be at an angle <laughs> and the ball would bounce down and then it would hit the floor and by then the floor would have tilted and it bounced up at a different angle and I used to catch it nearly every time first time so um, after doing that when I performed that trick anywhere else just with it throwing it in the air and it bouncing off the floor and catching it it always seemed really easy <laughs> so um, I remember I remember standing in that on that stage in the theatre there for hours chucking this ball watching it hit this roof and go off somewhere crazy <laughs> hit the floor and go off somewhere else crazy and then catching it on my forehead for hours and so um, I think it was a good learning ground you know and um, I actually got caught in a hurricane in the Bermuda Triangle on the cruise ship there once and uh, we sailed from um, downtown Miami um, to NASA and we set sail and we'd seen a cargo ship sink the day before because the chains had broken and all the cargo... You actually saw a cargo ship sink. Yeah, a massive cargo ship. And um, there's not many crew on board those ships, I found out. Yeah, and, uh, No, a helicopter flew over and lifted the people off and and the ship went straight down. All the all the cargo had slid to the front of the boat and we went down and the back was sticking up and just down it went. And we didn't think we'd set sail, but obviously um, we weren't to, re- to know that cruise ships and big ships like that they're much safer in open water when there's a big hurricane or a serious storm because there's nothing for them to crash into so we set sail and Miami port is inland a really long way so it takes ages to get out of and all the guests came on board and um, they're going oh this is fantastic and we were but we were going super slow so we've been going for like five hours and we were still in the port really you know in the river we finally got out into the into the um to the to the between uh on the, on the way to the Bahamas um, into the Gulf Stream and the, it was terrific you know they'd shut all the doors leased them all shut everything that wasn't structurally part of the cruise ship had blown off and um, everybody was like really really scared people were panicking they were all in their life jackets sort of like being sick everywhere and um, I was just lying in my cabin watching out the window and it was you couldn't see a difference between the sky and the sea it was all just mixed up there was no board boundary you know and um, we made we got to the island, but we weren't allowed to go in because the storm was so bad. So we sort of sheltered on the leeward side of this island, and then we turned around and sailed back. And um, I remember going to the reception, which was in the middle of the ship, which there rocks around the least. And they said, uh, and I, I could hear this announcement coming over the tannoy system. And I said, what's the announcement? I can't quite hear it. And they said, no, there's no announcement. They said you're standing next to the microphone, the address microphone <laughs> there. So it was really quite spooky. And, um, and through all this, you still managed to catch the ball on your. Oh, no, no, we've gone way beyond that. <laughs> Just lying, the ball trick. lying down was was was, was pretty <laughs> impressive at that point. Without being sick, but um, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I remember that. I always remember that being on that ship there. You know, that was a real experience. You are listening to a window on North Devon. Jim, that's me, is talking to Merlin. Um, the entertainer, magician and escapologist about his life. Uh, a huge thanks to Woodstock Windows who support this podcast. They've been uh, fitting windows, doors and conservatories uh, in North Devon and the surrounding area since 1986. So they really do know about their stuff. Right, back to the podcast. I've got here that you um, you did a show for Tim Burton in Costa Rica, is that right? Yeah, I used to go to Indonesia surfing for the winters. I used to live in a, in a, in a van 
and then um, when it was winter, I would I would leave the van at my friends and I'd jump jump on a plane and fly to Indonesia and spend my winter surfing in Indonesia. And um, one year I fancied a change. I'd been there I think seven or eight years in a row to Indonesia. And I thought um, and I I was um, I spoke to Tim Halen who owns Tiki Surf Company and said to him where's a good place to go, you know? And he said, oh, Costa Rica is great. So um, I, I said, oh, that sounds good. So I bought a little travel guide book, jumped on the plane on my own and flew to Costa Rica and changed in Miami. And when I changed planes, I met this guy flying to Costa Rica as well and we got chatting. And he said that his friend had an aeroplane and was picking him up the next day to fly into Guanacaste, which was a really good place to surf from. Would I like to go with him? So I said, yeah, cool. So we stayed the night in this hotel and um, woke up the next day knocked on his door and he said oh, I'm gonna to go tomorrow man and he had a girl in his room with him so I was like oh, okay so I sort of waited around for another whole day knocked on his door again oh man we're gonna to go tomorrow and I was thinking oh here we go I'm gonna be stuck here forever so I give him the chance one more time and the next day knocked on his door yeah we're good to go so we um got a taxi with him and this girl that he'd met and me and my massive surfboard and uh, so I strapped on the roof my longboard and um, we got to this sort of rural airfield and then there was a guy there called Greg with a plane a little tiny Cessna and I managed to um he said, there's a storm coming, we've got to be quick. So he managed to sort of get this surfboard into the plane. It literally ran from the back right to the front. It came right up next to the console. And I was in the co-pilot seat and um, Greg was next to me and um, Chris and his girlfriend were behind. And then um, he said, we've got to take off, man. You can see the cloud. And there was this terrible black doom sort of clouds coming. So we took off and we were flying along and um, it started to rain really, really hard. We were listening to the Red Hot Chili Peppers and there's a big mural all around the inside of this plane of surfing on waves. It's beautiful. And then um, the water started to come underneath the windscreen. And I got real quiet. So I was like, oh, man, that's not good, you know. And he goes, ah, oh, don't worry, man, that's fine. And then there was a, then it started to be thunder and lightning. And um, then we got sucked up. We, we couldn't go down. He kept turning these dials. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm turning the fuel supply to each engine. There's four cylinders. I'm turning the fuel to each one down because we're getting sucked up higher. So he was leaning, leaning, leaning it all off, and um, then the radio cut out, and the control tower buzzed through and said, "Whatever our flight number was, you know, you're above your altitude, you can be at. You need to be lower." And um, he said, "I can't go down, man. We're getting sucked up, and we're at like ten, eleven thousand feet, you know. And I think he starts to need oxygen around about then, and we're in this little plane with no oxygen. And he goes, "Man, I just can't go down." And he was literally turning all these things right to the minimum. We were still getting sucked up. Then the lightning started, and. Um, and um, my mate in the back was looking proper scared and his girlfriend was crying. And the only little tiny plane and me getting chucked around everywhere. And um, the lightning started and he said, oh, that's, that isn't good. And um, he said, but don't worry, he goes, I bought this thing called a strikeometer. And he, <laughs> he pressed this button on the dashboard and this sort of circle thing opens up like a sort of speedo. And um, it says 15%. And he goes, yeah, 15% is good. And then it goes, Whoa, he goes, oh, 75%, not so good. <laughs> and uh, we carried on. He said, right, guys, he goes, we're in a bit of a trouble here. They've closed the airfield now that we're flying to. They want us to divert. So we can either do the diversion or we can carry on to where we're going and see if we can find it and land there. So we said, what do you want to do? So I said, I'll do whatever you think is the best thing. You know, and the other guys said, oh, we just wanted to get down. So, um, so we stuck with it and we carried on flying. He gave me the map and said, like, you know, you have to tell me where I am sort of thing. And I'm looking at this map. Anyway, we managed to see this gap in the clouds and we just flew to this gap because we needed to see the ground. And uh, unbelievably, right underneath this gap was the airfield. So we were so jammy. So we came into land in this airfield and there these they, these black balls ran off the thing and we landed in this field with a hut and we, we made it there you know and then um so I stayed there for like six months or no sorry about three months surfing too scared to leave 
yeah. And um, I met this guy called Ronald Regoda, who was a big wave surfing champion. Um, he, he won the Pico Alto Challenge in Peru, and he was on all credit cards and sponsored by the bank over there. And um, I was surfing with him at this place called Tamarindo, and um, had a great time. And then one day, this lady was come over on the beach, saw me juggling, and said, um, "Oh, you look like a good juggler. You know, would you be able to do my kids' party?" And I said, um, I said, you know, when is it? And she said, Saturday night. And uh, it was like Thursday or something. And I said, um, well, if my friend will take me into the nearest village, I can get some balloons and make some juggling balls and I can make some sort of a show for you. So she said, that'd be great. How much would you charge? So I said, oh, $50. And, um, and I said, I want a crate of, um, of Estrella, which was the local beer. So that's a Ronald. So, um, so she said, that's fantastic, brilliant. So Saturday came around and I made these juggling balls with sand and um, these balloons. And I'd got some of those bracelets that you snap that glow up and tied them onto these clubs and got a knife from the kitchen. I did some routines for them and did a nice little show for them in a little circus workshop. And um, anyway, when I finished, they came over and said, that was absolutely fantastic. We really enjoyed it. You know, thank you so much. And um, they said, here's $100 and two crates of beer. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. So I gave Ronald a crate of beer. So I was in with all the big time surfers and um, some money for taking me to the town and stuff. And um, she said, I'd like to meet my husband, it's Tim. And I said, oh, it's really nice to meet Tim. She goes, yeah, it's Tim Burton, you know, you might have heard of him. And I was like, oh, right, nice to meet you, you know, he's this down-to-earth guy. And then they said, yeah, it's really brilliant, you know, thank you so much, it's been, it was great. So, um, but it was just like another family that had the whole hotel for them and their friends for this sort of four or five days trip, you know. But um, I've met quite a lot of people who are at the top of their game in whatever field they're in, you know, and all of the people that I've met like that, not one of them has been really sort of like thinking they're better than anyone else you know they're all being down to earth helpful friendly people giving people you know just like he was you know you couldn't have you know you wouldn't you know if she hadn't have said who it was I would never have known you know you know um and I said oh can I put a quote from you on my website and they said you can say whatever you like you know it's been brilliant you know amazing yeah incredible story but on that beach there I used to surf I saw a turtle once I went down one day and it was flat and um so I went snorkeling and saw a turtle eating the reef under the water and I dived down and held my breath next to it and just held on and um looked at this turtle and it looked over at me and we made eye contact and it just looked away from me and went back to eating and I was stayed there for a minute and a half or whatever however long I held my breath watching this turtle and it kind of accepted me you know it's sort of that moment when it looked at me I thought that was really I remember it forever you know it was like looking into the eyes of a dinosaur and then um, sometimes in the mornings when I'd go surfing there, you'd walk down and do all these monkeys in the trees and you'd get to the beach and there'd be these turtle tracks up the beach where they'd been burying their eggs, you know. And I always used to cover over all these tracks because people used to follow the tracks back up and dig out the eggs. So I always used to cover up all the tracks, you know. And then this turtle, when I saw it, I, saw, I think it realised I was one of its mates, you know. And it's like we had this little connection in the water. And uh, I think this sometimes, like, when you said, you know, you're a magician, you know, I've had some moments in my life that are proper magical moments you know like when I was looking into this turtle's eyes that you know that's what life's really about you know did you also get a quote from the turtle for your website <laughs> yeah okay you would be a good stand-up <laughs> comedian <laughs> right um so um this is an important question I need to ask and I ask everyone who comes on to podcast right what's your favorite part of the a361 uh, my favorite part of the a361 I've had a few moments on that road <laughs> yeah I've had a few moments on that road um, you know where it drops down to the to by Tiverton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one time I was coming back from a gig late at night, as you do, and there was a car pulled over that was coming towards Tiverton on that downhill bit, where it's, and uh, 
he'd hit a badger and his car was in a terrible state. The radiator was broken. So I, it was an Indian guy. So I stopped and said to him, you know, what's going on? He said, I was going out to Birmingham to see my family. I, I work in a restaurant in Braunton. And I said, oh man, I said, you won't be going anywhere in that car, you know? And I said, do you want to lift back? And he said, oh, thank you, thank you. So I drove him um, back to Braunton, even though I was living in Barnsville, I took him back to the restaurant. And he said, you must come, must come out, must come out to the restaurant, you know? So I said, oh, okay, you know, that's really kind of you, thank you. So he said, you must come, you must come. I said, all right, all right. He said, you know, come tomorrow night, you know, and I was going out with this girl at the time. So I said, all right, I'll come. He says, bring your, bring your wife. I said, oh, I've got a girl, bring your girlfriend. So he walked up to this restaurant and he said, um, oh, I've got this special table in the window for you. And he sat us in the table in the window. Oh, can I get you this? Can I get you that? And he kept asking us all these dishes. So we were like, oh, I was, you know, try not to eat too much. Oh, that's, thank you, thank you, eating these dishes. Come to the end of them. Do you want some, a bottle of wine? And I was like, I've got to drive, you know, so I'm all right. Uh, got to the end of the evening. And um, I said, thanks very much. You know, we've run a lovely evening. Thank you. He goes, okay, I'll get the bill. And I went to the thing and he gave me a bill and everything that we'd had was on this bill. And I was like, great. So I had this massive bill. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the punchline was going to be that he served you the badger that he ran into. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Badger. Yeah. That's by far the best A361 story I've had on the podcast. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I've had a few. One time I, I travelled around France on a motorbike and I was coming back and I dropped my girlfriend off in Devon. I was driving back up to Bristol and it was raining and I overtook a car and there was a car coming the other way that had stopped in a box in the middle of the road to turn right and the spray was coming up over these lorries and I saw the car at the last minute and I was going to hit it head on and I let go of the brake and I steered around it onto the completely wrong side of the road and around it and back on and I'll always remember that one because that was a real close one you know I would have, that would have been a head on at like 50 yeah. and um, so I was lucky to do I was quite tired after riding all the way to France and around France and got back and hadn't slept on the way back you know it was, that was another moment on the A361 Blimey. yeah dangerous bit of road so you've always kind of um, been slightly in this in the limelight like you've broken a few records haven't you? yeah I've got two world records they've both been beaten now both been beaten now mm. sad time one was, on... one was picking the locks and one was um, juggling and that was on the south bank wasn't it yeah that's right yeah I took the tube up there and did it on the south bank and I got a chance to reclaim my record and my training was going really well and there's actually an underwater film studio in London and they asked me to go up there and they were doing a radio broadcast underwater for 24 hours. They asked if I would go up and see and add to their, do something for, on this programme. So I got to this studio and I, and I didn't, and I came to my time to do it and I got into the tank. And it's actually like a massive swimming pool, you know, with a studio underneath it. And um, anyway, I was juggling and I couldn't do it. And I was what the heck? They said, you're allowed three tries for the record to count. First one, I threw the ball up and dropped it. I was like, what? Second one, I managed about 10 seconds and dropped one. I was thinking, what is going on? Third one, did like a minute and dropped. And I thought, that's it, you know. So you know, after it happened, I was trying to work out what had gone wrong because I was, I thought I could retake the record. And anyway, I, I looked in this tank. There's a massive current that pumps the water around the tank to stop it getting stagnant. So I was throwing the balls up underwater and the current was so strong, it was dragging these cannonballs about, you know, a, a half a foot away. So I was literally like, it's like juggling into a Force 10 wind above the water, you know. So anyway, at least I know why I didn't manage to, to do it. But um, it was a bit of a shame. And this, actually, in January, another company, were um, a charity, were trying to reclaim that, get that record for a radio broadcast. And they asked me to go up and, and try and do the record again. So it would have been the second time. And I said I would do it, but I doubted I could break the world record because I know now of the current. But um, I was doing a thing for... Um, children that had been adopted 
and um, I, I did like a charity thing for them and it was on the same date and so I said to this lot in London I can't come up if I'm going to come up I need to be back in Devon by five because I've got a prior arrangement I'm not going to let these kids down and they said oh no we need you to be up there in the afternoon and I said well no I can't I can't do it then so I missed the opportunity but it might happen again yeah I think I could get the world record again but I think I'd definitely juggle underwater in my tank rather than um, in the in a big swimming pool because the current was so, so bad so I'm looking back at my notes and I've been listening, obviously. Seems to be, other than this um, escapology and the juggling, yeah. the other scene theme seems to be underwater. Yeah. What, 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 what is that? Where does that come from? Why are you obsessed from your freediving um, to being challenged underwater to listen to turtles? It seems, I mean, for me... I mean, I can't swim in a swimming pool. I'm a very good swimmer. Right. I can't swim in a swimming pool on my own. I get very scared. Oh, right. Um, I go surfing and I don't get scared. Yeah. But I can't fathom... I wouldn't like to go like scuba diving or anything like right. that. Right. So for me, it's a complete strange thing. I have a very odd relationship with it. But for you, why do you spend so much time underwater? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Are you a mermaid? <laughs> might be. I'm not sure. I mean... I'm not the greatest uh, underwater people that I know, you know. A friend of mine, Cliff, he's really good underwater and he actually drowned and got brought back to life. He got secondary drowning. He, he passed out underwater in Lombok free diving in one of the Gili Isles in Indonesia and um, came back up and um, his friend sort of got him back to the surface and then that night he couldn't breathe properly and they took him to hospital and his lungs were filling with water and he was in hospital for a week in Mataram and um, he's a better free diver than I am, you know. But I just sort of... When I got to um, when I was on that Britain's Got Talent thing, and they were telling me before I did the my semi final, I went to Egypt and my wife for a holiday, and I'd been speaking with Sarah Campbell, who is a British freediving um, world champion, and she was running a training course for the British dive team over there at Dahab, which is a place called the Blue Hole, and so I went down there and I was, I'd arranged to have a couple of lessons with her, and I'd been training in the pool in Barnstable quite a lot, and I could swim three lengths underwater of the pool, so I got there and started training with her. And um, she sort of said the first bit when you sort of hold on to this tire and breathe up and the first bit when you turn and go under the water is really important. You see a lot of people flapping about at that point and that's not, you're not going to get very far. You just need to be able to literally duck dive and go down, you know. So she had this rope and with knots on it. She dived down to three metres and come up. So I dived down three metres, come up. She goes, right, I did five metres, I did five metres. She goes, right, your entry is perfect. There's nothing at all you can do better than that. You're really good at that bit. Try eight metres. And this rope was 10 metres. So I went down and she says, oh, when I came up, she said, I thought you were going to do 10 metres. And I said, well, I could have done 10 metres, but you said only do eight, you know, and I'm aware of the safety. And she said, she said, well, that's amazing, you know. She said, like, do 10 metres then. So I did 10 metres. And she said, that's great try 15 meters so she, you know i breathed up and dived down to 15 meters came back up she goes wow she goes it's amazing i've not had anyone who can do what you can do straight away have you free dived before and i said well, I've, I've dived down and swum along and looked at the coral and you know i can hold my breath for quite a long time but i've never done any proper free diving down and up a rope sort of thing you know um so i think i got to like 18 meters or 20 meters that day the first day of it and she said oh she said you're brilliant you know she said you are really good you know you're natural um wife and i got in the taxi back to the hotel and then the next that night i couldn't really sleep very well and i kept thinking about free diving and there's this thing called the arch there and um there's two arches in the in the blue hole one of them is you swim down you swim along and then you go through this arch and then back up and that's very difficult but there's another arch called the small arch and you just dive down there where all these graves are to 30 meters through this arch and come back up again 
one of the guys that she was coaching there, his aim was to do this arch. And I thought, man, I reckon I could do 30 metres. So, um, so I had enough money and I bought this dive computer. So I went back the next day in this taxi, just on spec, you know, got back to the beach. I knew she'd be there because that's what she does all the time. Went to the cafe that she hung out in, in between dives. There she was. So I said, hi, I've come back down. Um, I want to do some more diving, if that's all right. She said, so I've got classes today, but I can take you out in between. You know, you can hook up with one of the guys that I'm teaching. So we went out to this, um, the tire and the thing, put 30 metres of rope down. We took it in turns diving down. And then um, I did like 20 metres. And he said, just go for it, man. You could, you know, basically when you dive down, the person watches you. And as you start to come back up, all the gas that's been squashed in your lungs and everything starts to double back up. And in the last sort of five, six metres, obviously it doubles up the most in the last close to the surface again because every 10 meters is an atmosphere so it halves and when you come back up it doubles back up um lot of, if you black out that's generally where you black out so as long as you've got someone there to spot you if you black out they swim down as you're coming up and they swim up next to you and keep an eye on you make sure you're okay so i went for this thing so i dive down and you, you need to be hydrodynamic so you don't want to be looking where you're going you're just looking straight forward but upside down and you just swim down and after about 15 metres, 20 metres, you become negatively buoyant and you actually start to sink. So you don't really need to swim anymore. You just sink because all the air has been squashed out of you and so you're dense, so you sink. So I just started to sink and I got to the bottom of the rope. It was 30 metres and then um, you sort of, it's quite hard to arrest the fall, you know, because you're actually falling with momentum. So you've got to stop. So I turned and stopped and she'd said, don't look up when you get to the bottom. <laughs> so I got to the bottom and I thought, I thought, God, this is 30 metres. And I looked up. And, you know, like a swimming pool in Barnsville is 25 metres long. Mm. So I'm further than that underwater, yeah. you know. And I looked up and it was a really long way up. And I thought, God, that's a long way, and you know. There's so much light through the water as well, so it must... It was actually surprisingly light at that depth because I've been places where I've been much less than that and you can't see anything. But it was surprisingly light, you know. I mean, it's in lovely water. I made the turn and I started to fin to go back up. And it's like finning through treacle at that depth, you know. It's really yeah. hard to get up with momentum. And then once you start to get the momentum back up, you start to um, to move up and you're going up and up and up and up. And then as you go higher, the gases all double back up again. You get more buoyant, you get more momentum. So I started to fin back up. And I think the reason it's not good to look up is because then you tend to look up like that and swim looking like that. But you need to be looking forward rather than up at the rope. So I just put my fingers in a loop around the rope and just looked at the rope and just again and I just started to count to myself I thought I'll count to 20 and then I'll look again you know see how close I am so I started finning up got to like about 20 and my buddy appeared next to me so I carried on with finning got to the top and um that was it a 30 meter free dive and I looked at my dive watch it taken about 30 seconds so not a long breath hold but, um yeah that's probably one of the best things I think I've done in my life you know a 30 meter free free dive I don't know many people that could have done that you know so uh, that was a rule for me that was one of the best things I've done you know you say you say that was a, one of the best things you've ever done, and I was about to um, say something particularly flippant and go. To me, it sounds like you know a completely pointless sport. Yeah. But there must be yeah. there must be something in it. That, is there a chemical thing that happens on your way up that just you just go? This is incredible. I don't know. I mean, basically after it, can yeah. You, are you just so elated by it? Is I mean, it, is it sport that is pointless. You know, what is the, there is oh, no yeah. point to anything, is there? Really, like apart from eating and drinking and reproducing there isn't really a point in doing anything you know Absolutely. so I mean um, that's but, just me being negative no but that is true like you know I remember thinking um, when I was a kid my stepdad was a bit of a um, was an alcoholic and wasn't a very nice person you know and um, he said what's the point in skateboarding you know and I and um, he was a teacher and he was he was you know he liked to argue and win his point all the time 
and I, and I was trying to say, well, I enjoy it. He goes, yeah, but what's the point of doing it? And I, and I was trying to think, what is the point? And I couldn't, obviously, couldn't come up with a, a reply, you know, so he sort of like won that one, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm great. But, you know, and it is true, there wasn't really a point, there is no point in free diving. I mean, in the olden days, you might have free dived to get food or... I suppose it was a know, skill then, that, yeah. Yeah, for a, still it was a purpose it. to it, but I mean, I wasn't free diving for any purpose, but, you know, like, there was no point to it, you know, but looking back, when I'm like old and grey, you know, what's the best things you've done in your life, you know, it would be probably, that, well, it would be definitely up yeah. there, you know, and there is no point to it, but it would, that, but that, that is the point, you know, it doesn't matter that there's no point to it, because that is like, that is a special moment that no one can take away from me, no matter who, how much money anyone's got, or everything, you know, you cannot buy that feeling, you know, and I think that's what people need more of in their that's lives. That's what I wanted to get down to, was the feeling, what is that feeling yeah. when you finish it? I don't know if it's all the training that you put into it, and then like, it's sort of justified, you know, like you've done it, or whether it's just the fact that, I mean, I remember doing it and thinking, who do I know who can dive to 30 metres? And there was Sarah Campbell, and she's a world record holder. I mean, about not very long ago, 30 years ago, no one could dive to 30 metres. If I dived to 30 metres, I'd have been, like, one of the top divers in the world, you know. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, now lo- now loads of people can do it, but I don't know many. I mean, I got into it. I like that because I saw this YouTube video on YouTube about the, the set tank in Southampton, which is the submarine escape training tank. Yeah, and it's yeah, a 30 metre tank and you can go in through a door at the bottom and swim up to the top. And they obviously you breathe compressed air and then you open the door, step into the water and you have to exhale because you breathe compressed air, exhale all the way up. And I remember watching that video quite a few times and thinking, man, I'd love to try that. And I was thinking 30 metres, how far is that? I was thinking, well, the pool's 25 metres. And I thought... And I thought I can do a length underwater, so I should be able to do it. But it'd be quite scary when you first go in at 25 metres, you know. And I just got into it and I thought I'd like to learn that. And yeah, there is no point to it. But, you know, it's like, I love it. You know, it's probably the best thing that I've done, really. You know, yeah. you know, it's awesome. I think people need to do more stuff like that that's got no point to it, you know, just for their own, just for their own gratification. You know, you can look at your kids and say, like, you know, if my kids said to me, you know, if Tallulah says to me, what's the best thing you've done, Dad? I'd be so like, well, making you, you know, and... um you know, what about stuff you've done? And you know, I'd have to say, you know, like, that was, that was one of them, you know, for sure. You know, no financial get bain, benefit, no gain, you know, but that's magic. That's real magic, you know. When you're that, when you make that turn and you're at 30 metres and you look up and it's a really long way up, you know, and you think, like, and you're on your own, you know, there is nothing you can, you know, there is no, it's probably like going to space, you know. If it, what are you going to do, you know, you, nothing, you just got to deal with it, you know, and you, and when you come out through it, you think, God, that was amazing, you know, and I watch videos of people dive into further and I think, well, maybe I could get into it and do more than that, you know, but it's just, I think that's, that's real life, you know, I think when you're there at that moment and you're caught up in that moment and you're doing it, it's real life and that's, I think that's, people miss that these days, you know. Perfect, you can't, yeah. you can't free dive on your phone. No, exactly. <laughs> you're not experiencing anything. Right? The game's probably quite easy. <laughs> yeah. Download the app. Fin, 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 fin. Free dive app's going to be great. Yeah, um, I should get, invent that. You should invent that. <laughs> um, right, so, um, I mean, we're slowly running out of time, I feel. But, I mean, I've got a list of um, adventures you've got. We've been rally driving, treasure hunting. Um, we talked about the free diving. But I want to kind of look at this... Um, um, dousing, I know it's quite yeah. pop- it's popular these days. I yeah, you can get employed popular. from Southwest Water to actually do it now. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I got into dowsing when I was in Ireland. I got. A f- can you just explain what it is, please? Okay, well, it's um, locating lost objects or asking questions of a greater consciousness than yourself and getting the answers back about things. 
Um, people have Taoists for centuries. The army used to employ Taoists to find water in the desert. And so it's, it's divining water, is it? Yeah, thing? water divining or so dowsing. Do you walk around with a wooden stick or is that just me being you can silly? Use, yeah, no, people do that. Um, but you can use anything at all because it isn't the wooden stick that makes it happen, you know. Um, you can douse by, I used to douse by the sand in the bath after I'd been surfing, what was going to happen that day, you know. Um, it's basically like, it comes, I, I learnt about it when I was a kid, but I didn't realise what I was doing. Like I said, my stepdad was an alcoholic and he was, um, he was. And when I used to go to school sometimes, I'd walk along with a stick and I'd drag it on the railings and I'd listen to the noise it made. And I would say, if I hit every railing, then this will be, this will happen. If I miss a railing, then that will happen. And I wouldn't make the stick hit or miss. I'd be detached from the stick, but I'd just pay attention to what it did. And I would, and then from what what happened, I would read into it what was going to happen, you know? And then um, you can do that with, people do that with tea leaves, you know, they douse tea leaves, you know, read tea leaves, read palms, you know, all of those things that they're reading, whatever it is, see, you know, sand in the bath, tea leaves, palms, sticks on railings, pendants swinging, rods crossing, you know, those are just the medium that you're using to tune into something and they're not important, you know, that's not why it works. Um, but I learned about, I, I, I was doing that anyway from a young age, you know, and um, people can always say it doesn't work or can say it does work and they can always prove it isn't working or prove it, you know, and you can say it is working and then they test you and it doesn't work and they say that proves it doesn't work. But, you know, you know if something... And I'll give you some examples of things that have happened to me in a minute which will be, you know, which are true, that you'll think, well, that, you know, just shows it works, you know. Um, but I was doing a job in Ireland opening a B&Q store and um, the manager came over to me after a few hours and said, oh, there's this guy here who wants to see the juggler. And there was this old man and he said, are you the juggler? And I said, yeah, and I did a bit of juggling. And he said, I can juggle. He said, um, and I said, all oh, right, that's good. I always get people like that. And I'm always interested to see them juggling. I said, great, what can you do? So I gave him the juggling balls and he lay on the floor in the middle of this shop. And I thought, strange. And then he proceeded to juggle and make himself go upright. And he was like in his late 60s and from lying down flat to upright. And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. And he gave me his card and said, you can stay at my house if you can't find anywhere to stay. So I finished and I thought, weird guy, finished work, tried to get a bed and breakfast, couldn't find one, phoned the guy up eventually. And he said, I'll pick you up in 10 minutes. And he came and picked me up, took me back to his house, um, gave me a bedroom and then showed me his lake he's digging. We got chatting and he was a lovely eccentric man. And he told me about his dowsing and he taught me how to douse properly. He did it um, for people's um, health and um, he was an amazing guy and um, got me into dowsing, you know, um, helped, showed me how to do it. And then since then, I've been a member of the British Society of Dowsers now probably for about 20 plus years. And um, I've doused all over the world. I found um, lots of lost items. I mean, people can say it works or say it doesn't work, right? I found, um, I dug my uh, an ex-girlfriend's garden in Braunton, a metre wide, about 20 metres long. Dug, turned all of this garden over when she was away. I looked down and I had a jade bracelet and I noticed this piece of jade on the mud. Oh, it's my jade bracelet, the elastic's broken. I picked up the 12 pieces, there was one more piece missing. I looked back down this whole, like, metre wide strip, you know, and I was like, could be anywhere, it's all like clay soil. I just looked at this one clump, lifted it up, took out the piece of jade from underneath it and put it back down, you know? And I was like, how did that happen? Another time I lost an earring like that, a tiny little earring in the Indian Ocean when I was there with my wife. Um, I'd been scuba diving at a wreck and also a silver bracelet that I'd bought. We came back out of the sea and she said, oh, you've lost your bracelet. She said, and your earring? And I said, no. So um, we had lunch, went back to the beach, to the towel, and I said, I'll go and find it all now. 
I went back into the water and I found the bracelet after about five minutes, just saw the bracelet lying on the bottom, picked that up and swam in and it broke and I've still got the bracelet. And I said, and I got it, got it fixed. I said, here's the bracelet. She's that's amazing. And then I said, I'll go and find the earring now. So I've swam out into the sea in the Indian Ocean and it isn't sand. It was all stones on the bottom. And I've been at this wreck called Tullum Ben with my friend Jules Humphreys from Croyd, who's got the beach huts on the beach. I went out there and just detached from everything, just... Got in the just got in the moment and just let myself drift around looking. Saw my earring, picked it up and came back. I said, "I found the earring," and they were like, "No way!" You know, they couldn't believe it. You know, it was it was amazing. You know, um, when I was in Costa Rica, the dairy um, opposite where I live, where Ronald used to live, above a bakery, they their water broke, and I'm, I just doused some stuff. They said, "Can you come and find the water break?" So I doused the pipe and I said, "I think it's here," and they said, "Oh no, that's the ground looks wet there because that's where we washed our motorbike." I said, well, I said, look at the sticks, and they're crossing over above it. So um, a couple of days later, they come back, you were right. The Coca-Cola truck had come and made a delivery, and the ground was so dry that the truck had snapped the pipe off where it goes into the building. Um, the place that I was staying there, the, the, uh, he, he made a, a business up supplying um, water sprayers to people's lawns. He used to fit lawns and do these sprayers. And he said, I'm worried that at the end of the dry season, if my house is the last one along this stream along the road, then I'm going to run out of water because I'm the last one along the road. So he wanted me to find out if the stream ran down the road or if it ran in the other direction or if it came across. So I got my dowsing rods out, walked around this perimeter and I said, um, don't worry. And I said, like, you can see that the stream comes through through your property and across the road. So it doesn't come through the other properties. So it's not a problem. And I said, also, look at this. And I, I walked the perimeter and you could see that one end of it the rods crossed really dramatically and um, I said you can I said I don't know why your well situated where it is because this site here is got more water flow and he said that's amazing and he said um when he bought the property he built the fence and the person he had paid to come and douse to for him to know where to sink the well had said that spot was actually the best spot but he said he cheated when he put the fencing up and that was actually not his land. So he couldn't actually risk putting this well at that point in case the other people next door check their deeds. So um, he said, that's amazing you found it, you know. So, I mean, I've had many examples of things like that occurring that uh, the chances of me finding an earring in the Indian Ocean after losing it and going back a small diamond earring, you know, are, must be billions to one, you know, and the bracelet. Statistically, incredibly small. Yeah, you know. So, I mean... Um, and my dad used to rally drive. He he did the world. He uh, uh, marshaled a stage in Wales. Um, and uh, when I finished the stage, I drove back to. I marshaled it with the North Devon Motor Club. I got back to my mum's in Bristol and said, "Oh, that was brilliant, and I really enjoyed marshaling it." And she said, "Where did you go?" And I said, "We were at Resolven, which is the name of the stage." And she said, "I remember that stage." And I said, "Well, I drove through the stage, mum, on the way out of it, and I was having a bit of fun in my car, and I was sliding around this corner on this forest track, and um, then I noticed all these logs piled up, and there was about a five hundred foot drop off the edge." And she said, "Wait there," and she went upstairs, and she came back down with the Welsh International Rally pace notes from nineteen seventy three, which is the year I was born and she used to navigate for my father and she had the pace notes right there with the line through each of the instructions and it got to this one um hairpin left extreme caution big drop and there's a line all the way through the whole page and she said on that exact corner was the time that I said to your father that I'm not navigating for him anymore and that was when I was pregnant with you and I mean the chances of me getting to drive this forest track in the middle of the Welsh mountains it isn't a public road you know it's in a forest you know that and uh, you know I mean what the, you know so there's definitely something around life that we don't realise, you know, that this serendipity sort of, this magic that happens, you know, and I think sometimes I tune into it and I feel like a part of it. And then sometimes in my life I felt like I'm a bit out of kilter and not really in tune with it, you know. 
So um, yeah, that's why I say I'm a, that's why I think I'm a wizard because there's definitely this magic going on, and sometimes I feel like I can see it, and I sometimes see it in other people. You know, like I've teaching some kids, you know, with learning disabilities, and I've done some some, some things with them and had and couple of a couple of um people I, I, who I've been teaching have had like one arm and I and I've had some got them to juggle three balls I've taught people with dyspraxia whose parents say you're wasting your time mate they can't even tie their shoelace you know they're 15 and they come back half an hour later and the kids juggling you know and they're like oh my gosh you know and I think um you know I've got this sometimes I've got this ability to sort of bring out the best in people and help them to fulfill things that 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 they don't even know they can do you know and when I I love it when that happens I think that's the that's the best thing in the world you know when you get that 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 magic happens like finding that water break or finding that earring you know that you lost or you know my mum giving me the pace notes and me seeing and me just thinking you know there's something more going on in this world than we can perceive you know and sometimes it becomes glaringly obvious and someone else could look at it and go that's just coincidence that's you know and they could tell you that and that they might be you know they might believe they're right you know but i've seen stuff like that occur that makes me see other things that are there you know i think it's life is amazing you just got to open your eyes and see it um, so you mentioned children then, and that you do some work with them. Yeah. Um, but you've um, you've done you've written a book. You've written children's book. Yeah, I've written um, I've written a book called Surf Stories from the Boardwalk, which I wrote when I was travelling around Indonesia over a few years. Um, it's a collection of ten short stories about surfing that teach most morals and water safety and surfing etiquette. And I'm just writing another book now, which is called um, The Wheelbarrow Boy. Is this your autobiography? No, I'm writing my autobiography as well. I was going to say, that's not a very good title for your autobiography. No. <laughs> no. I don't think that gives away enough. No, no. So, um, so yeah, yeah, The Wheelbarrow Bo- Boy is, I'm writing it at the moment, and it's going to be a book. I think it'll be, um, I'm hoping that it's going to inspire people to make the most of their lives and achieve things that they don't think are possible. Wow. And yeah. your autobiography, is that just a work in progress? Um, what I've done is I've written down key things that have happened in my life that are like amazing and I'm just writing each one of those down the story of each individual bit um, and then I'm going to put it all together and make it, make it into an autobiography and I started to write that um, and I've got quite a lot of individual stories down and then um, I had this sort of like the, the wheelbarrow boy was in the back of my mind as well and I'd started to write that and I sometimes I just I find when I write I can't just sit down and write, you know, sometimes it's not the right time and I can't do it. And then another time it's the right time and I can just sit there and bang it out, you know. So I started off with the autobiography, wrote some bits down of that and then I sort of went off, of, uh, then I'd written those moments I'm waiting for the next sort of like wave of it. So I stopped that and then um, the wheelbarrow boy sort of, I got to a point in that book that was sort of like a bit of a, sort of like a cul-de-sac and then um, I just got this inspiration for the next part of the story I've started to write that down now, so I'm up to that. And then um, I find when I go travelling and I haven't got the sort of stuff to do, the daily things you need to do, you know, when I go travelling, I find that I uh, I can write really easily. So next week I'll be back on my writing again. I'll try and do like two or three hours each day. I'm about halfway through the Wheelbarrow Boy book now. And um, if I can carry on with the sort of time schedule that I'm on at the moment with it and I think I'll probably have it finished and produced and get um, published this year and I'm hoping that it's going to inspire people in their lives to achieve things because um, when I'm writing it I can feel the magic going into the page you know and I'm thinking it's going to be a book that people will read and reread and pass to people and say read this you know and help people who are in it because when I was a kid my stepdad was an alcoholic 
and um, it wasn't a great sort of um, start off in life, you know. And um, I've been really lucky with people that I've met who have guided me and books I've read as well. People have said, read this, you know, I've read books and I think that's something you can do for yourself that helps you. And um, I'm hoping that this book's going to help a lot of people who might be in a similar situation or people who just want to know, to see the magic in life, you know. I think if you read this Read, sometimes I've read books and I've read them and I thought well that's like Jonathan Livingston Seagull I've read it and thought that's an inspiring book you know and I've gone on and with my juggling I've seen myself sort of like taking my juggling path the same way that you know that Jonathan Livingston Seagull learns to fly you know and it's like yeah so I'm I'm really enjoying reading reading other books and writing my book at the moment I'm hoping that one day people read my book and go yeah that was really good I get great feedback from the surf stories from the board rack but it's not really the same sort of genre of book it's more of a book to help children have nice morals and nice bedtime reading for kids and I get loads of good feedback from that and people say oh my kids really started to enjoy reading now that they've read your stories because it's about a subject that they sort of like they aspire to do or that they like doing so if I wanted to buy it for my kids where can I get it from um, you can get it online um, as an ebook. Um, I think it's available on eBay as well. You can buy it from me directly on eBay, um, or you can just contact me, you know, Merlin Cadogan, um, and I'll sign a copy and send it to you. It's five quid for the book. Signed copy, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. I'll um, send. I'll bring you one round. I'll send you one. Right. Thank for you, your kids. That's my pleasure. Um, so. I mean, it says on this list that you sent me, plus I've done a million other cool things. And oh, yeah. I mean, we don't have time to go into much more, <laughs> I don't think. And I always end, I want to end this podcast, like I always do, by asking um, my guest what their favourite view in North Devon is. And I think this is an oh, interesting right. one from you. Yeah. Because through these stories, you have travelled, you've seen a huge amount of stuff, mm. uh, you've lived in other places, but you've always come back here to North Devon, which is a, yeah. a special place, and I've lived yeah, away, it and is, I've come it? back. It is so a special you place. must have a spot that you just absolutely adore. Do you know, the best spot for me, which um, if you ask a lot of surfers, they'll tell you the same thing, you know, um, wherever the break may be, for me, my favourite break here is Saunton Sands, right, and when you get a good wave and it breaks from the caves and it peels all the way through, there's a spot right there that all the locals know that is you can get some really long, long, long right-hand right waves breaking from there, you know. And when you're paddling out and a wave breaks behind you and it's an offshore wind and all those, all the water gets blown up into the air and it rains down on you behind the wave on a beautiful sunny day, it's like getting getting rain falling on you, isn't it? And the wave just breaks breaks in front of you and all, behind you and all the water gets blown back over the top of the wave and you look up into this beautiful blue sky and it's raining and you can see rainbows and that smell that you get as well of all the salt from the water... And um, I mean, that is for me the best view in North Devon. It's a magical view, you know, and it's a really special. And when my dad died, my stepmom scattered his ashes in the sea and I was surfing at the time. And I didn't know she was scattering the ashes. And I remember the moment that it happened, I felt this oneness. And I remember thinking, God, like I was on my surfboard on my own, sat there. And I'm thinking, well, that's really weird. Like I just felt at one with the world at that one moment. I think it's the only time in my entire life I've actually felt this great oneness that like I was connected to the whole consciousness of the world. And I didn't know that it's because she had scattered his ashes until a few days later when we went out for a meal. And she said, oh, I scattered his ashes a few days ago at like two o'clock. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, and I started to cry. And she said, what, why are you crying? And I like said to her, you know, I just, I was surfing at that time and I felt something had happened. I didn't know what it was. So for me, that moment when the wave breaks behind you and the wind's offshore and it blows all that water up in the air and it rains down and you look up and you can see all like the rainbows and you get that salty, beautiful smell, you know, that for me is most definitely the best view in North Devon. It's um it's beautiful. 
<laughs> a beautiful story. Thank you. Um, I really, I, I completely get where you're coming from now and can imagine it as I listen to you. It's absolutely <laughs> perfect. Thank you. Um, so that's pretty much everything, Merlin. Thank you so much for uh, your time and talking to us. I've really it's enjoyed a real it. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and I think um, I think they got the wrong person when they made the biography of Paul Potts. Maybe they should uh, <laughs> maybe should make your story into a movie too. Let's People see. wouldn't believe it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I don't. No. I mean, I worry that I'm going to when I grow up, I'm going to be the sort of person that tells their child a story. They went, no way, Dad. Did you do that many things? <laughs> you, on the other hand, are definitely going to become that person. They'll be like, no um, way, Dad. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, my daughter. So, you know, um, my son Kanace and my girlfriend's kids, Riley and Casey, they see the stuff going on around them, you know. Like, when I got my world record picking the most handcuffs live on TV, I went to the stream behind my house. I used to live with my dad on Bear Street, and I got some water out of the stream in a bottle, and I wrote love, respect, happiness, gratitude, and stuck all these labels onto the bottle. And then I went up to London, because they contacted me on the Wednesday, and I had to do this world record on a Saturday, and I'd only ever picked one set of handcuffs at a time, and they said you need to choose, be able to pick up to nine. So I practised picking multiple sets, which is difficult, because obviously your hands have got less mobility. Got this water, got up to the TV, did a gig in Cornwall on the Friday night, drove overnight to London, got there about four in the morning, had a few hours sleep, went to the studio, practised all day in the studio in between takes of this stuff, and then we did it for real, and they, all the people kept coming, do you want a drink, do you want a drink? And I said, no, no I've got my water, I'm only drinking this and then just before we actually did it for live and the dress rehearsal I picked two handcuffs you know and they said be better if you could do more than two six <laughs> is the world record and I was like I'm trying my best you know I do my best and then um, just before I went on they said do you want a drink and I said oh, I do want a drink and they said we'll get you some water and I said I said no it's all right I've got my own bottle of water and I looked around I couldn't find it and I thought and they said you'll be on in a minute and I said I'm going to get my water and they said no no you can't move and I said I'm going to get my water and I walked down the corridor back to the dressing room, got this bottle of water that I'd nearly finished, finished it off, walked back and they're like, you're on in a few minutes. I was like, it's fine. And I went on and I smashed it and got the world record, you know. And um, I reckon it's because of the fact that I'd drunk this water that I'd got from this stream from the house where I used to live and written these messages on there, you know. And I think water is the secret. I mean, I reckon water is proper magic because when it freezes, it floats, when it's, dent, you know, uh, which is really weird when it's a solid, it floats, when it's liquid, you know. Um, I think water is the magic of the world, and uh, yeah, so water's it. Water's the Drink key. water. <laughs> Merlin, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. You have been listening to A Window on North Devon. The show is supported by Woodstock Windows, who have been supplying and fitting windows, doors and conservatories in homes in North Devon since 1986. For more information on this podcast or our supporters, go to woodstockwindows.co.uk forward slash blog. This show was produced by Jim Duncombe.